Dear church family, today our children and young people learn a great deal in school. In Great Grace Christian Academy, I suspect they'll learn considerably more than some of us did who were lacking as we grew up years ago, dedicated Christian education. And there is so much to learn, so much to learn in life, for spiritual life, for being prepared for a career, for being a useful citizen in society. So many things we need to learn. But what is of paramount importance is that we learn to sit at the feet of the greatest of all teachers, the Lord Jesus Christ. What a teacher He is. He's a perfect teacher. And He often teaches us, perhaps most commonly, through providences in our lives, especially what we might call cross-providences, through storms, through tempests, through things that seem to go against us. He teaches us to be driven out of ourselves, to find refuge in Him, the one who can help us in every need, the one who can come and say, it is I, be not afraid. Maybe you are in a tempest in your life right now. No one can help you but Jesus. Maybe you're crying out, be thou my strong habitation, O God, with David, whereunto I may continually resort, for thou art my rock and my fortress. Well, the good news is that precisely in the storms that roll through and roll over your life, the Lord Jesus is delighting to draw nearer and nearer, closer and closer to you, to show you Himself. And that is a sweet fruit, the very sweet fruit of bitter affliction. And that's exactly what the disciples experienced on the Sea of Galilee. Jesus came, showed them, taught them through His compassionate, almighty power and His closeness, His intimacy. And that's what He does in the Lord's Supper as well. But how does He do that? Well, that's what we want to look at right now from our text in Mark 6, 45 through 52. Let me read again verses 49 through 51. But when they saw Him walking upon the sea, they supposed it had been a spirit and cried out. For they all saw Him and were troubled. And immediately He talked with them and said unto them, Be of good cheer, it is I, be not afraid. And he went up into, unto them into the ship, and the wind ceased, and they were sore amazed in themselves beyond measure, and wondered. Well, my theme this morning is 
The I am's compassionate power. The I am's compassionate power. And we'll look at that in four thoughts. First two in the sermon and the third and fourth at the table. First through a trying Savior. Second through an approaching Savior. Third through a reassuring Savior. Fourth through a rescuing Savior. A trying, approaching reassuring, rescuing Savior. So our text takes us this morning to the Sea of Galilee, kind of a middle-sized lake. It's at night. There's just one ship out in the lake, 12 men on board, the disciples of Jesus. And one of those famous Sea of Galilee storms comes over the hills into a kind of downdraft for which this sea is famous, and the storm begins to sweep in, and heavy rains, and life-threatening conditions begin to beat against the ship. This is not altogether uncommon. We saw one of these storms back in Mark 4 already, about a year ago, in preaching here. And I myself have been on the Sea of Galilee a few times, and one time we went out and it was perfectly sunny, and when we get out there, all of a sudden a storm came in and it just started downpouring, just just like that, from out of nowhere. It wasn't as serious as this storm, but... The Sea of Galilee was known for that, but this was a particularly bad one, Mark tells us. The the ship was tossed with waves, Matthew tells us in the parallel account, for the wind was contrary. So the twelve were in great distress. Now, how did they get there? Well, it's interesting. It's important to understand how they got at night into that lake. While while they were yet on land, just before this, you recall, Jesus had miraculously fed 5,000 men from five loaves of bread and two fish. And there were 12 baskets of leftovers of excess. And both the disciples and the thousands there were amazed. Who is this man? who fed us, thousands of us, from a few fish and a few loaves of bread. But no one seemed to grasp the meaning of it. No one seemed to to understand the magnitude of this miracle, what was going on. They didn't see Jesus for who He really is. They didn't realize that His purpose of coming was not just to give physical food, but spiritual food, life everlasting. Which is also the purpose of the Lord's Supper, isn't it? It's not just to be fed physically. It's to be fed spiritually. So all they saw was a great miracle, but they didn't see the Savior Himself as the God of miracles who could give them what they needed for eternity. In fact, in the parallel account in John, John tells us that many of the people reacted by saying, Wow, if this man, if this man can feed 5,000, we ought to make him king. We ought to make him the one who defeats the, the, Roman, uh, the Roman Empire. 
So we can come out from underneath Roman taxation. He who can feed so miraculously, can't he also lead us to victory? But you see, Jesus didn't come for a secular kingdom. Jesus didn't desire that at all. He came to lay down his life. Instead of getting the victory through conquering, he came to conquer through dying. So that poor, needy sinners like you and me might be freed, not from Roman bonds, but from even greater enemies, from sin and Satan and death and hell, free to be conformed to His image, free to be transformed and made new creations, free to glorify Him and serve Him and love Him and to find our all in Him forever. That's why He came. And so as soon as Jesus gets wind of what they're saying when He feeds the 5,000, He immediately... That's where our text picks up, verse 45. Straightway, that means immediately, he constrained the disciples. That means he forced them. He said, get into the ship. Get into the ship and go to the other side before into Bethsaida while he sent away the people. Never did a crowd of 5,000 plus evaporate so quickly. Jesus took charge. Disciples, I don't want you to be tainted by these foolish secular ideas of the crowd. I'm putting you into a ship. Now go to the other side. And you crowd, dispense. I will have nothing to do with a secular kingdom. And then Jesus departs into a mountain, verse 46, to pray. Wow, it's amazing, isn't it? Most people would just be saying, come on, bring it on. I want more of this. I want more of this adulation. You want to make me king? That's wonderful. Not Jesus. No, no. Don't don't distract me from my mission. My mission is to save sinners, to bring my Father's will to pass, to bring Him glory. Be gone, people. Be gone, disciples. I need to be alone. I will not be tempted in this direction. Jesus goes to prayer. He's all alone. He's the only one on land. Mark makes a point of saying that. He's the only one now on land. Well, if our Lord needs to pray to pour out His heart as the Prince of Peace and the King of Kings to the holy, righteous heart of His Father, how much more don't we need to pray as poor, hell-worthy sinners What an example Jesus gives us here. Jesus didn't have a single sin to confess to His Father, but He needs to pray. How much more do we need to pray? There are so many sins we grapple with, so many afflictions, so many daily needs, so many struggles, so many storms, so many temptations, so many dangers to backsliding. The more we know about ourselves and the more we know about the Lord Jesus as the prayer giving, prayer hearing, prayer answering God, the more we should find these times alone to pray. Mark says in verse 47, Jesus was alone on the land. Are there times like that in your life as well where you just got to go be alone 
I'm not talking about your stated times of prayer when you get up in the morning or go to bed at night. I'm talking about the middle of the day. I'm talking about when the storm enters into your life or, or just when you feel your emptiness without Jesus, when there is no storm. You just need communion with Him. Do you know what it means to go to be alone with Jesus? That's a mark of a believer, actually. He wants to be alone with Jesus. At least many times. Not all the time. Because we're still sinners. Verse 48 says, After Jesus was praying for a while, he looked up and he saw them. He saw them. It was night. It was the middle of the night. He saw them. Jesus has eyes that can see through anything. He saw them toiling in rowing, for the wind was contrary to them, verse 48 says. They're tugging at their oars. They they row and row and row. And through no fault of their own, they make no progress, for the wind is contrary to them. So what's going on? Jesus is trying. He's trying his disciples. They're exactly where they were supposed to be. They're exactly where the Lord told them to go. And yet they're in desperate trouble. Why would that be? Is that the way Jesus works with his people? Tells them to do something and then they obey and they get in trouble? How confusing. Wasn't it true that they themselves didn't want to get into the boat and go out into the lake? But they went in obedience, and now they're in this huge, life-threatening storm. When I was a boy, my dad used to say to me often, he'd say, when we come in difficulties in life, it makes all the difference in the world whether we brought ourselves into those difficulties through our own sin or whether we're brought there through the guidance of God. You see, on the one hand, you can become sick, for example, through no fault of your own. Or you can encounter disappointments while you're walking in obedience before the Lord. But on the other hand, you can also be in trouble because you've forsaken the Lord. Or you've fallen into some sin. And you've just got to cry out for mercy and repent. But here the disciples are in the way of the Lord. That's the point that Mark is underlining. And we must learn from their example not to hastily conclude that when you encounter adverse circumstances in your life, that that's a proof automatically you're walking contrary to God. No, God's people often receive chastenings and trials from God when they're in the way of obedience. Think of the whole book of Job. Think of Hebrews 12. God chastens us as sons. And what son is he whom the Father chastens not? You see, God has told us as believers that we in this world will have tribulation. So we must banish the thought that a life of communion with God means a trial-free life. But why? Why then does the Lord lead us through storms and trials to bring us finally to the safe harbor of heavenly glory. Well, 
We often don't know why. What I do now, thou knowest not, but thou shalt know hereafter, the Lord says. Often we don't know why there are storms in our lives that tear our hearts apart and fill us with fear and bring us to why questions that we cannot answer. So God has specific reasons. We trust that. Probably many reasons most of the time. And we trust that by faith. And often we're not to know because we're to walk by faith and not by sight. And so though we don't often know the specific reasons why God is doing what he's doing when he brings us into storms, we, we can know at least two major general reasons that are always true. God will get glory. That's number one. God will get glory through the storms he brings into our life. Remember John 11? Jesus loved Lazarus. Verse 6 says, when he heard that Lazarus was sick unto death, he abode two days still where he was. He waited. Why did he wait? Verse 4 tells us, this sickness is not unto death, but that the Son of God might be glorified thereby. And how does Jesus get the most glory? By, by healing a sick Lazarus or by raising a dead Lazarus? No, that's a rhetorical question. But how does he get the most glory in your life and in mine? Isn't it often by bringing us into storms, bringing us to our wit's end where we can't solve the storm, and then he comes and calms the storm and we give him all the glory? But the second reason why, the general reason why he brings storms into our lives is to refine and mature our own faith, to purify us, to strengthen us so that we grow in the grace and knowledge of the Lord Jesus Christ. Spurgeon said, I thank God for every storm he's ever brought into my life that has left me shipwreck on the rock of Christ. That's what he does. He brings a storm into your life that you cannot resolve. And you, you fly to him, don't you? And your prayers get new energy. And you go shipwreck. But you go shipwreck on the rock of Christ. Which is precisely what Jesus wants. Because that's precisely what will mature our faith. And that's precisely when he can show you his compassionate power. And how does he do that? Well, he approaches you. He approaches you. He sees you, and he approaches you with his mercy, with his power. Verse 48 begins so simply, he saw them toiling in rowing. That's the beginning of our second thought. Jesus sees them from his mountain where he went to pray. He sees them when they don't see him. The disciples had learned that now in this storm, in this tribulation they were in, that they would receive a glorious manifestation of his compassionate power. But they don't realize it quite yet. And what a comfort that is for us still today. You may be in a ferocious storm right now. You're being tossed to and fro by contrary winds. In fact, so much that it's even shaking your very faith 
And then on top of all this, Satan is whispering in your ear, you really think there's mercy for a kind of sinner such as you? You really think you can come to the Lord's Supper? You when you're so unworthy? Well, he's approaching you this morning under word and sacrament. He's coming. You don't see him yet. Perhaps even this morning. But he sees you. You see, the thought of the disciples was, Jesus has abandoned us. It's a, it's a terrifying thought. It's a dreadful thought. Jesus doesn't see us. But they were dead wrong. And so are you. So are you. He not only saw them, he saw them toiling and rowing. And he's on his way. He's approaching them with his compassionate power. Dear believer, Jesus Christ, your Savior and Lord, He always sees you. And He always sees you with an abundance of love in His eyes, an abundance of faithfulness, an abundance of compassion, an abundance of power. His eyes never lose sight of one of His children at any time. He's the high priest who has them in his priestly eyes. He carries you on his priestly shoulders. He has you in his high priestly heart. He's engraving you in his high priestly palms. He cannot let you go. No man shall pluck you out of his hands. So don't think that he doesn't see you. Don't think he's not on his way. Don't think hard thoughts of Jesus. That would all be so unlike him. He sees you intentionally. He sees you purposefully. In fact, interestingly, the text doesn't say he saw the wind. He saw the waves. That's what the disciples saw. The wind and the waves was was everything that filled the whole panorama of their lives. But Jesus saw them. Saw them. He was looking after them. He was looking after them in the fourth watch of the night, 3 to 6 a.m. He is that divine watcher who never sleeps or slumbers. He is a faithful shepherd. He's on his way. He's on his way. Now, it may seem sometimes like he takes a long time, but he waits to be gracious. The Bible says. He waits until our extremity becomes his opportunity. He cuts off all our expectation from every source but himself. When the worst is reached, the better begins. By the better, I mean his visitation, his approaching. And what an approach it is. What a miracle of power it is. Compassionate power. You see, the Lord Jesus comes walking walking upon the waters of the stormy sea. He goes towards the disciples in their greatest need. And what is their greatest need? Well, if you ask them, they would have said, if only the wind and the waves would dissipate, all would be well. But their greatest need is always Jesus. So is yours. No matter what life brings you, no matter what storms you're in, your greatest need is Jesus. Jesus is not on board. And what lies between him and the disciples? The roaring waves of the sea, which prevent them from reaching the shore. But what they need is Jesus on board. They need Jesus with them. But he's coming. He's approaching. 
He's coming on the very waves that are giving them so much trouble. Now, I want you to understand this. This is very important for experiential Christianity. Do you understand Jesus and His ways in your life? Jesus doesn't come and take the waves and lay them aside. He could have done that and come on a smooth path. Jesus walks on the very waves of trouble that the disciples fear is going to drown them. Let that sink in a moment. He walks on the very waves of trouble. He comes to you, not skirting around the waves, not first calming the waves, but he walks on the waves. Isn't that surprising? Well, yes and no. Yes, if you don't know the Lord Jesus, but no, if you know him. Because if you know him savingly, you know that Jesus still deals with you this way. The waves of your trials and afflictions are often the path he uses, isn't that true? To visit you, to comfort you, to rescue you. When the Lord brings you into overwhelming afflictions and you don't know how to handle them, handle them, isn't that just when he comes? Just when he shows himself? Where would you be in your life without storms, without afflictions? What would you be like spiritually if you never had any trials, if the sea was always glass? Well, you certainly wouldn't be close to Jesus. So when the ship of our lives is being tossed around and billows of waves are being swept over us, when we've suffered the loss of a loved one, or when we're struggling against a certain sin, or when we're filled with anxiety over a problem we cannot resolve, the Lord Jesus uses those very distresses to come and grow us. All things work together for good to them that love Him. And you see, we don't, we don't realize that at first until he reveals himself. So as he's approaching, he lets them see him. They suppose it had been a spirit, verses 49 and 50 say, and they cry out, for they all saw him, and they were all troubled. How desperately we need Jesus for everything. Even to realize his own presence. They saw him, and yet they didn't see him. They saw everything that was going on around them. They saw someone approaching, but they thought it was a, a spirit, a ghost. They, they think he's unreal. Maybe some of you who've struggled a long time to come to the Lord's Supper still think that what's happened in your life is unreal and that Jesus is still unreal. You know so little of him. He can seem so far away, so hidden. You fear he doesn't see you or hear you. That he won't, he won't approach you with compassionate power. You know you need him. You know you're a sinner. You know you need exactly what the Lord's Supper represents. But is it all real enough? Is it all deep enough? Is it all something enough? And so the darkness and the faith and the storms keep tossing you about. But it's him. It's him. It's he. He's the one who emptied you. He's the one that's drawing you. Don't resist him. Bend the knee. Walk in his ways. Receive his invitation. You need him. Hear 
his reassuring words. It is I. Be not afraid. Well, those reassuring words we'll look at at the table in a moment. Amen.